In fandom's flame and nerdy light, let our passions now take flight. Embracing life with all our might, we are geeks and we're all right. Hello everybody, this is your host, Justin Hunt, Green Lantern of Sector 2814 Highland Division, and you're listening to another episode of the Kilted Lantern Podcast. Now, this is going to be an unusual episode, as it's usually our longer episode of the month, you know, the one dropped on the 15th, and I had an episode planned where I was going to be talking again with uh, Ryan Mercer. Um, We were going to cover the subject of uh, geeks and uh, escapism. It was going to be a very, very good episode, I'm sure. However, Ryan had some uh, situations arise that uh, prevented him from being able to do a recording session. And you know what, Ryan? We're pulling for you. You'll get through all this, and we'll get this episode recorded for another date because I don't want to give up on this one. It was going to be really good. So, that being said, I'm going to go ahead with a subject that I've been trying to figure out a way to squeak in there, and it's one that uh, is very meaningful to me, the Star Trek versus Star Wars arguments. Now, that's going to be an interesting subject, and I was hoping to have a couple guests on for that, but this August has just been insanely busy for nearly everybody, so it may get... uh, kind of heated if we have this discussion open up over on the Kilted Lantern uh, Facebook group which is where I'm hoping to open up after this now before we get into that though we have our uh, standard kilt tip and cosplay tip now I've been thinking for a while about the uh, kilt tip situation because well, honestly, after so many uh, segments regarding uh, how to properly wear an attire with your kilt and all that, it's been uh, interesting coming up with them. And well, I think this time we're going to discuss plaids. Now, I'm not talking about the actual material plaid, you know, like what some people call tartan. No, I'm talking about plaids as in the accessory to the kilt. There are several forms of these. Uh, The most commonly seen one is the fly plaid. Now a fly plaid is just a a section of tartan material, usually matching the kilt. In fact, that's the correct way to wear it, is matching the same tartan as the kilt. Although I have seen instances where the selection of tartan is another one of the same family of tartans. For example, I once saw a Stuart dressed tartan fly plaid worn with a royal Stuart kilt. And in some cases, other affiliations like uh, Royal Air Force tartan or something like that being worn as a fly plaid with a clan tartan kilt. It doesn't look terrible, but it looks much better when it's matching, my opinion, and the opinion of most people. Now, like I said, that's a section of material usually only, you know, a few feet of it, you know, not much more than a yard of material, sometimes a yard and a half at most of the material. And it's a square 
folded over so that it, you know, the corners are touching and it's just a big triangle. So it's folded diagonally, uh, laid over the shoulder, under the epaulets of the jacket, if the jacket has them. And if the jacket doesn't have epaulets, I really would not recommend wearing a fly plaid because that really helps hold them in place. They slide through underneath the epaulet and then it's broached on the front left uh, breast. Now, and that's the breast of the jacket. Now, I have seen them worn on the opposite side if the person is uh, left-handed, but traditionally wearing it on the left-hand side is the best way to do it. It looks the best, it's the traditional way to do it. But you know, when you're a lefty, you gotta make the changes where necessary, I suppose. Um, that is something that you typically only would wear for the most formal of occasions. And usually only if you're the guest of honor at whatever that occasion is. Like uh, the groom would wear one at the wedding. Um, the uh, graduate at a college graduation party could wear a fly plaid. Um, or even on the day of the graduation would wear it if it's a kind of formal to-do style of graduation. And like I said, just whoever's really there. I mean, like the person addressing the haggis at a uh, Burns Night event could possibly wear the fly plaid. And that would all be perfectly fine. Like I said, if you're a guest of honor in the situation, that's the time you want to wear it. The one exception being is that I've heard that you can wear them for white tie events and it's not considered um, disrespectful for every person there to be wearing one. Because white tie, of course, we don't get much of that here in the U.S., is the highest of formality. Um, the thing to remember about fly plaids is because they are broached to the uh, left breast of the jacket, it does have a tendency to pull back on the jacket so it can look a little off sometimes. I, I've seen them uh, broached on to, uh, directly to a vest instead of a jacket um, for an outdoor wedding in the summertime once, and it, it looked okay, but there was some noticeable pull and we ended up, uh, I was the one officiating and I had to help with this. Um, we took a small safety pin and broached the bottom section of the vest to the kilt so it wouldn't pull back and choke the person. And that's why you really never want to have it broached to your shirt either. And most plaid brooches are have a pretty big diameter pin and they'll put a decent sized hole in whatever you're putting it on. So either get kind of a smaller pin or be prepared to have a hole in there from that. And that's, you know, the reasons why you really only want to wear those at certain occasions. Like I said, I personally like the ones with the smaller diameter pins with the lighter weight fly plaids. You want it made out of a lighter weight tartan if you can do so because of that reason. Now, the, one of the other types of plaids that we're going to talk about is a day plaid. Now, a day plaid is basically just a big tartan blanket. Um, it's kind of like a picnic blanket, more or less. And I have a couple of them because I like them. And they're sometimes referred to as Laird plaids or shepherd plaids. Now how you do this is it's a length of tartan again. Um, mine are actually about two and a half yards to three yards worth of material. 
And again, this is a dependent thing, and that's double width material on mine. Because like I said, they're intended to be more or less a picnic blanket. And they also work nicely for wrapping up on cold nights. Like, okay, you're out during an event during the day and it starts cooling off during the evening. You can ex offer your plaid to your lady fair or even just use it yourself if you're by yourself. But how those are worn traditionally is you fold them into a long strip of material. And then you can fold it back over onto itself so that it's only half the length. And then you kind of lay it on your shoulder. Generally, the weight and the grip of the material will allow it to stay in place that way. I've seen some people uh, put a brooch on it and slide it under their epaulette so that the brooch actually catches on the epaulette and stops it from going backward. And also, it adds a little bit of extra weight and even a little bit of extra bling, if that's your thing, to the front of it and hold it in place that way. And I've never had a problem with my uh, day plaid falling off. I've never had that issue. So that's one way of wearing it. Now the other way of wearing it, and this is what makes it more of a quote-unquote shepherd's plaid look, is to take it while it's still uh, arranged into the long um, strip of material. Put one end over your shoulder so that you have a short piece hanging down in front of you. Um, usually on your left hand shoulder and there'll be a long piece hanging down behind you. You take that long piece, pull it around underneath your right arm, kind of like a weird sash, almost like reversed sash in a way, and flip it back up onto your um, left shoulder. And that will help hold it in place. And you can also brooch the two together that way if you desire to, although you'd have to have a pretty hefty brooch to do so. Um, and you can also, if you have a jacket with epaulets that unbutton properly, you can do that and then button the epaulette over top of where they cross and that will help hold them in position. It makes for a pretty dashing look on a day wear kind of thing, you know, a nice casual day wear. It also looks good with Renaissance Festival attires if you're not wanting to do the full great kilt. That's a nice way to add that, a little bit of extra tartan in there. And the nice thing about the day plaid is and then it's also referred to as a Laird's plaid at this point as well. Day plaid, Laird's plaid, and shepherd's plaid are all the same thing. Um, although Laird's plaid typically tends to be in the clan tartan because it's designed you know, to be worn by the higher members in the clan. The Laird's, as it were, the Lord's. Um, they typically match the tartan of the kilt in that case, or are of the same family of tartans. But day plaids don't have to match the tartan of the kilt to look good. Because you're wearing it with day wear attire, you can have a completely different tartan. And, you know, I like having them connected personally, although my two day plaids, um, one is a non-clan tartan. It's just an old piece of uh, really cool looking uh, tartan that I found. I used to use it as a great kilt when I was a few pounds lighter. And then I have another one that's a loosely plaid-ish weave material. It's a, well, it's a very blankety material. It kind of feels like uh, one of those woven throw blankets that you can pick up in places. And that's what it is. It's white and gray and it looks really nice with everything because it's neutral colors in that sense. But it's not a, even a tartan at all. And you can do that with the... Uh, day plaids like that um, 
the one I wear with the traditional fold on the shoulder, and then the other one I, and then the white one I actually wrap it around myself that way because it's a longer piece of material, and I think it looks really really nice that way. Now, the third type of uh, plaid that I want to talk to you about is a piper's plaid. Now, I don't usually recommend wearing these unless you are indeed a piper because it is really it's really big and it's a lot of work to do right <clears throat> excuse me now a piper's plaid and you can usually see these actually sewn as opposed to just folded because of the amount of work that goes into these a piper's plaid is a piece of tartan of course that matches the kilt that they'll be wearing with their uniform traditionally I have again seen exceptions to this but generally speaking it's matching because it's part of a uniform now I have seen this done two different ways um, one you just lay down the piece of material um, the exact length again it depends based on you know the size of the person wearing it but generally speaking you'll want probably about three yards, maybe four, depending. And it's pleated across, and so that's a narrow strip of material, put up on the shoulder, on the left shoulder, just that little bit past the forward epaulette, and then wrapped back around the person's body and flipped back over the shoulder so that the long piece is hanging in back on like a fly pad, sash combination kind of thing. And then it's broached at the shoulder to hold it all together so that it doesn't fall apart. And again, under the epaulette is the best way to do that so it doesn't slide off the shoulder after it's done. So, you wanna keep that in mind. That's a pretty much a Piper's only kind of thing. Yeah, you can wear it to a Renaissance festival. You can wear it to anything else, but traditionally it's reserved for Pipers. And usually not even every Piper in the group. It's usually more or less just the major on that one because it's pretty fancy and it can get in the way real easy. Now, all of these different styles of plaid can have fringe or not. Usually you see fringes on uh, all the way around the outside edge of fly plaids and piper's plaids. Occasionally on Laird's plaid, day plaid, whatever you want to call it, um, usually you only see the fringe on the very ends in those cases because it's a more of a functional kind of thing than a show kind of thing. I have uh, two fly plaids, one Scottish National, one Clergy Tartan. The Clergy Tartan has a very fine fringe around the outside edges, and the other one has what's referred to as a pearled fringe, where it's a hand-knotted kind of fringe that extends out a couple inches. Um, both are nice, both look nice. It's just a matter of personal preference at this point. I like the pearl fringe on like my shepherd's plaids, um, whereas my fly plaid I actually kind of prefer the shorter fringe. That's a me thing though. And here's a little piece of advice regarding the wear of fly plaids especially. And I do this for cosplay because my steampunk cosplay wears a fly plaid. Um, I've yet to work that into my kilted lantern cosplay though I'm talking about doing a uh, Kilted Lantern morning dress uniform. And I'm not talking morning like time of day, I'm talking like morning as in like John Stewart called the morning uniforms to be worn 
in one of the recent Green Lantern issues. Um, it's still in the design phases, so I'm not going to bore you with details. But anyhow, one of the things you can do with that is you can either use the uh, really powerful earth magnets or you can use um, safety pins. Putting one near your back and holding the uh, fabric of the fly plaid to a little bit lower spot on your back, like a, like just under the bottom of your left shoulder blade. Putting it right there will help keep your uh, fly plaid from getting away from you throughout the course of a long convention day. Those are designed for dressy occasions and they can fall off and flop around and get in the way if you're doing anything that's not generally done at a dress thing. You can also pull them further forward and broach them further down on the breast. Not a look I care for, but that does help with holding them in place a little bit better. I like mine a little bit higher up, closer to the shoulder area. Mainly so I can wear all of my uh, various doodads uh, and stuff that I've earned over the years from different places. But uh, that's a little tip I can give you there. And also you can modify a plaid brooch to have those earth magnets in it so that there is no pin back on it. I'm in the process of putting one of those together myself right now so that I don't have to worry about putting holes in my nice jackets or even in the fly plaid itself. So there's another option for you on that. Now, for your cosplay tip. Now, your cosplay tip is, uh, it's going to be pretty basic here. It's just a few tips regarding um, how you finish your photos of cosplays. Mine are all untouched photos. I don't do touched photos for my cosplay. I put out a couple where I like stuck in a little special effect here or there. But that was really just me playing around on my phone and thought, huh, that looks neat. Um, photoshopping and filters on your cosplay photos. Now, you're going to do what you're going to do because it's your cosplay, your artwork, your photos. You do you. I get this. And I'm not going to try to tell you what you have to do. But if you'd allow me the being allowed to make a couple suggestions on this point. With your cosplay photos shoots, try to just get really good looking photos from the start if you can. And do as little touch up as possible using Photoshop. Because you know what? When I look at cosplay photos, I look and it's like, you know, I want to see the cosplay in its purest form. I want to see this cosplay like I'm going to see it at a convention. And this is just for your general circulation, mind you, not necessarily like, you know, calendars and all that kind of thing. That's the professional grade stuff. I'm talking about just the basic stuff. And filters, I want to see who's in this costume to a degree. I mean, when the costume doesn't completely cover the entire person, that is why? Because, you know, I want to admire the artwork that you as the cosplayer put into it. You are an artist. I want to see the artist and the art. So let's try not to put too many filters or too many special effects on your cosplay because I have seen legitimately amazing cosplays be dismissed as being CG'd. And that's a shame, because that really discredits the artist in this case. So, accept your credit where your credit's due. Don't overtouch. Alright, now, we're going to go ahead and move into our next segment now.
Hello everybody, um, this segment today we're going to be talking about Star Trek versus Star Wars. I wanted to have some guests for this one, in fact we may revisit the subject later on. However, I'm just going to dive straight in on this from my particular point of view. I, I have gone, I, I've been blessed to have gone from seeing this be a heated debate into something that's an occasional jab back and forth in good humor between the two fandoms, which is what I really prefer to see. Because I hate it when fandoms conflict with one another when they really don't have to. Because in this case, you're comparing apples and oranges. But before we get into too much opinion on this matter, I want to talk a little bit about the statistics. Star Trek was created in 1966 by Gene Roddenberry. Well, at least 1966 is when it first appeared on television. And it currently has ten series, one of which is animated, so nine live action, one animated series, and 13 movies. Star Wars first appeared in 1977, was created by George Lucas, and currently has 12 movies, including a Clone Wars um, animated movie that was supposed to be a theatrical um, pilot, more or less, for the series, from what I understand. And that one also has... Eight live-action series, only one of which has currently been released. The rest are all to be announced. And six animated series. Um, there's also a couple of TV movies, which is the holiday special that no one likes talking about. Um, the Ewok Adventures and Ewok's Battle for Endor. Those are all products of the 80s, so bear that in mind. And then there is one game show, actually, um, that's the Jedi Temple Challenge. It's a web series. And a short film called Reflections. And I have not seen any of that stuff. I'm just not that into Star Wars. I want to hunt all that down. But if you are, that's great. I'm glad you have this stuff at your disposal. Except for that holiday special, I'd like to personally apologize, even though I didn't make it. I'm sorry. But bear in mind that the CGI Luke at the end of uh, Mandalorian, yeah, that looked more like Luke than that uh, real Luke in the special. So, yeah. But anyhow, now, I'm going to be making fun of both of these equally. At least I'm going to try to because there is some comical points between these two different franchises that just, you know, you have to address it. You can't just ignore it blind-eyed. Even as a fan, it doesn't bother me for either of these, but there's going to be some humor made, okay? So please bear this in mind. Now, I've had it said that, well, I've heard it said that uh, Star Trek is what would happen with an idealized humanity. We finally get over ourselves, and this is what we can accomplish. Now, then we have Star Wars, which is basically take advanced technology, throw it in the mix with our current political atmosphere, and this is what we get. And I'm talking world politics, not just U.S. politics, so don't, let's not go there. Um, I can't really disagree with that. Um. I can't remember from my life who who said that originally. It's probably just some kind of thing floating around on the internet. Um, 
but credit where credit is due. I didn't come up with that, but I think it's fairly accurate. Now, why someone would choose Star Wars or Star Trek over each other, that really is a matter of ideologies and preferences. As much as I am a natural pessimist, if we're being honest, I prefer Star Trek. Because I need a little bit of a reminder every now and then that humanity can still do great things. And Star Trek helps me to see that acted out, although it's been going darker with the newer series and such. Which bothers me a little bit, but the stories are still good. And this idealized thing just works very, very well for me. Now, in the case of Star Wars, I, I, I see the warfare and I think, you know what, that seems perfectly realistic. A lot of people knock on uh, that part in Star uh, Wars, one of the recent uh, movies. Yeah, I know, new trilogy stuff. Where you see them on the planet with all the rich people and they're just talking about uh, warfare from that perspective. Warfare is like that. Star Wars has some realism in that kind of in that kind of respect. The same people are selling to both sides in a lot of cases, and it's sad, but it's true. And so that makes for a more compelling war story. War stories are entertaining. They engross us. It's just part of who, who humanity really is. And Star Trek doesn't give you a whole lot of that. More often in the movies than in the show. You get more or less encounters with Star Trek. And some people say it makes it dry and boring. And some people say that the insistence on these uh, sciences or pseudoscience is pompous and all that. And I don't think that's the case. I, I just think that that's that universe. And Star Wars has some spiritual aspects to it in the sense of the Force and all of that kind of thing. And it has these compelling characters in a war environment. To, so it gives a more solid story for the hero's journey that you don't get with the Star Trek series. And I can see that too. I see both sides of this because I enjoy both. Now, both of these series have shortcomings and they have strong points. There's no way around it. Any of these franchises that go as long as these two have, you're going to have highs and lows. Unfortunately, in our society of toxic fandoms, just rearing its ugly head in every direction, you're going to have more critics than you have fans in most cases. Even when you get something absolutely amazing like, say, Star Trek Picard series, I thought it was an absolutely great series. There was a couple of creative decisions in it that I'm not entirely on board with. But, you know, I'm happy with it, and I'm happy to see that it's going to continue. Picard's my captain, by the way. As much as uh, my stepdad would uh, disown me to hear me say that, Picard is my captain. Um, although Cisco is, like, right up there with him in my my eyes, anyway. Um, so I'm excited to see things being done with that. 
Um, in this great back and forth, there are characters you can cling to. I, I'm also a very big fan of Scotty, obviously. Um, he has very much the positive Earth-human passions involved that you don't see in a lot of the other characters. But anyhow, these uh, characters in Star Trek, they're a much more, how should I put it, ragtag group in the original series, and then they start going back and forth on Sirius or ragtag, continuing through it. Star Trek has done a great job in building a universe. In that sense, we have different languages, different cultures, um, different uh, political setups, and we get to see some of that, but we also see some group that's trying to be a uniting force in all of it. Um, one would make the argument that we're seeing the Empire as it should have been, if it were a benevolent empire built on mutual understanding and peace as opposed to hatred of war. And that's something I can really wish would happen. Now over here in the Star Wars, okay, I'm a Luke fanboy. I mean, the moment I see that in Return of the Jedi, the moment I saw the all-black uh, Jedi uniform, with that green lightsaber, I became a fan. That was my moment right there. And I honestly wish that they would have kept that style of uniform as being the Jedi uniform, because I believe that uh, Obi-Wan originally was trying to uh, hide out on Tatooine dressed as one of the natives. If you notice, he was dressed like pretty much everybody around him. But I... I digress on that point. Um, but I became a fan with Star Wars at that moment. Why? Because I am a very much a sword and sorcery storyline kind of guy. And you get those elements all the way through the Star Wars storyline. And you have a set of characters you're supposed to care about. And they continue on. Now I'm talking mostly in film and visual representations here. Outside of, say, comic books in novels because both Star Trek, Star Wars, they have these outside media that's books and movie and uh comics and video games. And as much as those are fun as much as those are fun, I'm not gonna focus on them as much because I'm just not as well versed in them. Read some here or there, but I'm not well versed. So I'm not gonna use those for any basis for what I'm saying. So if you know something that I don't, good on you. I'm always willing to be corrected, and you can go through the Facebook group for Kilted Lantern Podcast on Facebook. You know that group on there? Great way to start discussions. Join up, start discussions. But you have a group of characters you're supposed to care about in the Star Wars movies. That's how we got the Skywalker saga. And it allows for a more definite character arc on each of these cases as opposed to a TV series where that's stretched out more and your characters are established. Um, I love Data's character arc, but Picard doesn't really get much of one over his turn as captain in the Next Generation series. 
he's an established character already. I wish they'd do more to help us understand how he got established in that sense. I mean, there's novels that clear that up, but, you know, i just really like to get some of that information in a series sometime. And with the Star Wars movies, you also get a much more uniformed look to your world. Because every culture has their own things, yes, but there's consistency there that isn't in Star Trek. In Star Trek, a lot of times there's budgetary constraints and such like that that made them have like three or four different uniforms on screen at a time. I'm talking different styles of uniform on screen at a time. And they did do some work with trying to create more uniform look, but ultimately they ended up having to make some creative decisions to say, well, every starship has its own uniform. And different eras have different uniforms, and they're drastically different. There's no slow evolution of uniform. Okay, I guess, whatever. Um, it just reminds me a little bit of the uh, units in the American Civil War, especially in the case of the Union, where every unit was um, required to, or at least had the ability to, design its own uniform. That's how you end up with the kilted New York Regiment that abandoned the kilts pretty early on. Um, primarily because they're being made fun of, and secondarily because the U.S. government's like, we can't afford these uniforms, you just have to go with what we can provide. Or provide it yourself. Um, and then we have uh, the Suave units and all that kind of stuff. So, And then, of course, the green sharpshooters and stuff like that. So, there's some historical context with that concept, and, you know, it really does help create a more close-knit uh, group on a ship where the, they're going to be operating by themselves for so long, so it creates a cohesion amongst the troops. So I get that to some extent, but also a lot of it just really looks like it's budgetary constraints. And it's hard to pinpoint regulations. Whereas Star Trek, again, we get this group of people working as a unit, and we have some characters that we're supposed to care for in each series, but there's a lot more ancillary character kind of stuff going on there. And you're focusing broader across. If Star Wars is indeed a space opera, Star Trek is a space soap opera. Much more concerned with the daily dealings of things. It's easy to put together storylines in a time of warfare where major things are going to happen, whereas on a starship, there might not be anything particularly major that's going to go on. And you kind of get that vibe of, you know, every now and then the characters get pulled out of boredom to do what they're doing. You get that a little bit in both, though. I mean, after all, I mean, Luke Skywalker went from being an angsty teen seeing they're making vroom-vroom noises with a spaceship model to being a galactic savior and legend. And then we have, you know, Star Trek, where they go from, look, I'm in engineering, and you're putting me down on this planet, I'm guaranteed dead. You know, it, it's that kind of logic. It's just boredom at that point on their end. So you get that being ripped from boredom and put into something greater than yourself. The adventures might be smaller in Star Trek, but... In the case of Star Wars, 
it's only because of the political climate they're in. You get rid of that galactic civil war. Star Wars actually gets kind of boring after a little bit. I mean, granted, there's a lot of extra stuff that goes on. I know there's novels that expand on all that. But from a movie standpoint, the world has a mundane end that you just don't get to see very often. Because the stories are being told at times of war. And every now and then, I like a little bit of the mundane in an idealized world. So that's, again, why I lean towards Star Trek. The original series is my comfort series. I put it on for background noise when I'm doing stuff. And it's just there as a comfort. Star Wars, I have to watch and pay attention. So, at the end of the day, it really is just a matter of preference. Anyone who says that one is objectively greater than the other, they don't understand how fandom works. Because in this case, you are comparing apples and oranges. You're taking the day-to-day -day operations of a space navy and trying to compare it to a group of ragtag heroes in a time of war. Most popular society and popular media tends to gravitate toward those ragtag heroes. That's part of who America is, because we're a country of ragtag heroes, especially in our own eyes. I mean, I, I live in such a small town where out the window I saw what was potentially a very short funeral procession, so I, I don't want to be disrespectful to the individual here. But it was led by two tractors, one with an American flag, one having a wagon that had seats on it for, I'm presuming, the family, and then the hearse and a few other cars. I just saw that out my window earlier today. We are a society of individuals, so the individuality associated with the Star Wars universe really draws to us Americans especially, and obviously worldwide as well. It gives us this potential for individual adventure and lets us know that we can accomplish great things on our own if necessary. Now... Now, Star Trek, however, leads us in a path where we put ourselves aside for the greater good. And yes, we see that in Star Wars to some extent, but ultimately we're looking at stories about individuals. Even with the storyline that's considered one of the uh, anthology movies versus the Skywalker saga, if you look at, say, Rogue One... If you look at Rogue One, you still get that individual story with those characters. Now, Star Trek very much is, like I said, putting yourself aside for the greater good. Um, we see the ship acting as a unit. Everybody has a function. Everybody contributes to do some great thing. This is a story that I like to see a lot because I think that humanity has a tendency to shun teamwork. If we could come together on some points, we could accomplish a lot. A lot more than we can individually in most cases. I see so many charities out there doing so many different things, and I think to myself, you know what, if we could just get these guys to work together for a little while, instead of proving who can do the most here or there, 
just work together, accomplish something bigger. I see it in government, I see it in religion, I see it in day-to-day -day operations, in workplaces. So to me, Star Trek stands as a what could happen if we just put ourselves to the side and function for the betterment of society and for a specific job when we're talking about it for this on a ship level. Each ship has to function together. They have to do their job. Now, this could just be the fact that, you know, I'm from a long line of naval descent on that. But when everybody works together, the unit moves forward. When everybody works together, the ship functions smoothly. When everybody works together, great things are done. And that really is the biggest appeal to me out of the Star Trek universe. I also really enjoy the fact that you know, the, the alien races that are encountered are really expanded upon in most cases. Klingons, Romulans, Vulcans, Kardashians, Ferengi. You know, the Ferengi annoy me a little bit because they represent uh, the more negative aspects of the free market in many cases. But that's their culture, so, you know, whatever. And there's lots of other aliens out there. Well, I, non-terrestrials. I don't want to use the term alien because a lot of times you're seeing them in their own environment and that's not really correct to say that. Um, and you get these other cultures in the Star Wars universe, but very, very much less so. That's not the focus of that, whereas you get the focus of other cultures with Star Trek. You'll have entire episodes dedicated to one character's cultural identities. And as somebody who enjoys studying other cultures, again, that's another draw for me. So, it's with that in mind that I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to wrap up this time by saying that if you try to compare Star Trek and Star Wars, you're not going to get very far because you're comparing apples and oranges, and it's not fair to either franchise. And don't knock on someone who's a bigger fan of one than the other because they chose based on their preferences. And that's what fandom should be. Alright everybody, this is our time for our character spotlight. And in this character spotlight, we'll be covering the, the Hellboy character, Abe Sapien. He's a personal favorite of mine. Um, had his own comic series for a little while, and he's just an all-around great character. Um, obviously, he appeared the first time in the Hellboy series, created by Mike Mignola, and his name is taken from Ichthyosapien, which isn't, isn't an actual species designation given to him because the scientists in question were more cultists involved. But we'll get into that. Alright, now... His story starts with uh, one Langdon Everett Cowell. Um, who was a member of the 19th century Awanus Club. Which is a club, but at the same time it was more or less a cult. Um, they had a 
a tendency to believe that all knowledge and life came directly from the ocean. And they worshipped the deities that were involved with it, especially Awanus. And during their studies, rituals, investigations, what have you, this group of scientists and businessmen who kind of went out on the wonky end of things um, started delving into things. And, well, one time after finding uh, some underwater ruins, they recovered a jellyfish-like creature that turned out to actually be a deity. And Cole and some other members uh, started doing uh, some experimentation on it and such like, and eventually it led to them doing a ritual. Now that ritual um, eventually released the creature and Cole got turned into the Ichthyosapien. And now since these other cultists believe that uh, this was Oannes being reborn, they've sealed him into a tube of water to allow his body to continue to develop unencumbered but also in a controlled environment. They were scientists, after all, and I used air quotes there. Um, their laboratory was underneath a Washington, D.C. hospital in a group of, well... And because of the outbreak of the American Civil War, they had to abandon the site. Um, the last time anybody was there was on the day of Lincoln's assassination, and they just left a note with a piece of paper and Ichthyosapien on it. Hence, we have the name Abe Sapien. Because then in 1978, a group of workmen during an excavation and potentially a militia of the hospital found that laboratory and his body was taken to the BPRD and that's where he was given the name Abe Sapien now when he was there he was experimented on, researched interrogated, all this kind of stuff and Hellboy stopped them from vivisectifying him which I believe is more or less a live dissection Hellboy was being empathetic and stopped them from doing that. And so, it was Hellboy that saved his life. And after that, um, Abe became a member of the BPRD and, more specifically, a field agent that works a lot with Hellboy and Liz. Now, Abe remembers nothing of his life as the uh, scientist Cowell. Landon Cowell, the name meant nothing to him. He didn't even remember any of it. Now, at Cavendish Hall during the climax of Seed of Destruction, Sapien was possessed by the spirit of the long-dead whaler Elihu Cavendish. And Cavendish was a contemporary of Langdon Cowell who killed the mad monk Rasputin. So Cavendish killed Rasputin. And foiled the plans of releasing Ogdru Jihad to destroy the world. And the uh, Grisku affair during Wake the Devil, Abe ended up getting led to a trap, um, and the other agent died, with, and Abe was, of course, wounded. Um, Rasputin's vengeful spirit uh, prophesied that Abe would end up being speared to death 
and then came Plague of Frogs, and poor Abe actually did end up getting, quote-unquote, killed by a spear. Um, and he was uh, taken in an out-of-body experience to let him witness his former life and see himself before the transformation. And, well, he, Abe, put himself back into his old body before the transformation and it created a spiritual time loop. Before Abe returned to the present, there was a fast where he made a fast recovery and began to do research into his past life. Um, apparently he was married at the time of his being a normal human, but his wife, Edith, um, goes insane and drowns herself. And she was eventually turned into a ghost that had to be exercised after she t- attempts to have Sapien resume his life as Kao. Um, and then the Awana Society had some other things going on there, um, including uh, putting their psychic forms into cyborg bodies to stave off an apocalypse. And their goal was to kill a bunch of people and then harvest their souls to do the same thing so that the spiritual essence of man could be saved during Armageddon. Um, they had vat-grown bodies made for that. And it was some really messed up stuff. And Abe, of course, helped to foil that. And really, Abe just kind of single-handedly took that whole thing out. However, um, it comes up later on in King of Fear that uh, through a psychic vision, it's discovered that Abe is going to have a much more monster-like appearance later on. Not this nice sleek uh, gill man kind of thing he's got going on. Because even after a little while, when he gets put into a coma, he grows you know some longer limbs and a longer neck and more alien-like appearance. His nose starts slipping away. And he becomes much more like that. But it's believed that he ends up being... You know, some people believe that he is a more highly evolved form of the frogmen that have been given the BPRD so much trouble because you know they're part of the demon armies. Um, and that comes out through the, uh, King of Fear story arc, story arc and the Conqueror Worm story arc. Um, and it all results with some members of the BPRD distrusting him. Now, in Gods, Abe was shot by a psychic girl named Phoenix, who, well, Phoenix, if you want to go with what it says here but it's F-E-N-I-X I've gone back and forth on how to pronounce it but uh, the BPRD showed interest in her because she has the potential to be an equal to the Hyperborean shamans who keep Ogdru Hem from entering Earth and while she ends up shooting Abe he goes into a coma and we kind of get the hint that maybe he is one of the more advanced frogmen. And in the monster storyline, it's revealed that Abe's condition gets worse. And he ends up going brain dead after suffering extreme brain damage. Um, he was, however, able to miraculously recover, but when he came out of it, 
He realized then that he had grown the longer limbs, longer neck, and mutated more. And when he came out of his coma, he discovered the world was an apocalypse. And he breaks out, goes out on his own, because they were going to keep him under wraps the whole time because of him potentially being this more mutated frogman. Um... He goes out on his own, does his whole heroic thing, ends up with his own series for a while. Um, and in Devil You Know, he ends up playing another big thing. But Devil You Know is such a great series, I don't want to spoil any part of it. I realize it's old enough to where it's outside my normal um, spoiler thing. But I'm telling you, it's a great series. Now... Unfortunately, Abe hasn't been in some of the more recent Hellboy comics because the more recent Hellboy comics, aside from Devil You Know, um, are showing the rise of Hellboy in the ranks from his youth to maturity. And, well, Abe doesn't show up until 78, 79, and they're still in the 50s with that Hellboy series. So, yeah. But Abe is an interesting character in and of himself. Um, he was miraculous like just wonderfully portrayed in the first two Hellboy movies and the third one he's eh. but uh, in the first movie they have him portrayed by an actor um, Doug Jones but he was voiced by David Hyde Pierce who refused to be put in the credits as such because he admired Jones's performance that much because Jones nailed it. He ended up being Abe in the first and second Hellboy movies. And in the second one, David Hyde Pierce didn't do the voice. He's like, he, th this actor's got it on his own. He's good. That's why I admire David Hyde Pierce. He's willing to do that kind of thing. Although his voice work for it was flawless. Um... Then in the, uh, he's only in like the ending scene of the new Hellboy movie. They show him being discovered. I'm sure they're planning on going forward with a sequel on that one, but yeah, you know how it goes. Now, Abe Sapien did appear in the three Hellboy animated films, the ones that went straight to DVD. That's Hellboy, Sword of Storms, Hellboy, Blood and Iron, and, uh, Well, he was in two of those straight-to-DVDs, not all three of them. But in Hellboy Sword of Storms and Hellboy Blood and Iron, um, he's actually voiced by Doug Jones again, and Doug Jones also does his voice in the video game that I didn't even know existed until I was doing the research for this segment. But I definitely want to play Hellboy, The Science of Evil. Um, he voices Abe Sapien in that as well. And again, it's a great character. I highly suggest that you uh, look into him, especially that series that he had on his own and in the Devil You Know series, which is just great Hellboy comics right there. Um, look into it. It's well worth the time. And that pretty well concludes our time together. And so as your host, I'm reminding you all to keep your rings charged, your pleats in the back, and to stay geeky.
As always, if you liked the show, please subscribe, share us with a friend, and give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. For more content, like the blog, check out our website, Kilted Lantern, all one word and spelled like it sounds, dot Wixite, W-I-X-S-I-T-E, dot com, slash Kilted Lantern. That's kiltedlantern.wixsite.com slash kiltedlantern. Also, take a peek at our social media with our Facebook page for up-to-date information and a bit of niche humor, the Facebook group for nerdy discussion and chatter, and Instagram at kilted underscore lantern. This podcast was made using the software on anchor.fm, and all music used in it is from their free music library. All properties mentioned in this show are copyright to their respective holders and are used without permission. All opinions presented are the views of those that brought them forth and do not necessarily reflect those of the podcast or its host. Until next time, remember to keep your ring charged, your pleats in the back, and stay geeky.